This morning's scripture reading is from chapter 2 of Joel, verses 1 through 5, 12 through 18, 21 through 29, and verse 32. If you are able, please stand in reverence of the reading and hearing of God's holy word. And if you are unable to stand, join us now in lifting your hearts. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. There, like has never been before, nor will ever be again after them through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them. But behind them, a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses, they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of the flame of fire devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and let the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priest, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations." Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for your abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. I'm Bill McCutcheon, uh, the lead pastor here, and uh, it's our honor to join uh, together on uh, this, the Lord's Day, uh, as we gather uh, as his people here, uh, knowing that uh, around the world uh, the church gathers, uh, the church celebrates uh, together this uh, one God uh, who is our, our hope. I try as I can when we have uh, honored guests with us to celebrate and uh, received an email this week uh, that, and I am terrible with names, uh, but Victor Naka, Victor, are you here? Victor is back here on our right. Victor and his wife, uh, Nocizo. Uh, Victor is the mission to uh, the world. It's our mission sending organization. He's the international director for Sub-Saharan Africa. And we thank you for your ministry. Uh, we thank you for your faithfulness to the gospel. And I wish uh, we had time today to hear about what God is doing because I know it's exciting. Uh, I look forward to hearing on my own. So folks, as you see him today, make sure you encourage him because uh, it's an honor uh, to have him in our midst. So I uh, hope I see you back there. Any kids need to head out? Is that if there are any kids who need to head out, they can head out now with Miss Hope and go to their foundations class. But I think most of them are gone. Good. I wonder how you would respond as we are getting into uh, these minor prophets. We began last week with Hosea, and we're moving straight through every single uh, week. Uh, this week we are in Joel. Uh, probably a book you haven't read too often or recently, unless you're on a Bible reading plan and then you move through them. Uh, we've been uh, coming to an understanding that the minor prophets are minor only in their name. They were called the Twelve. They were called minor prophets not until the third and fourth centuries by Augustine and Jerome, not because they were minor in their message, but they were smaller for the most part. Uh, Joel is a three-chapter uh, book. It's one that is easily read in a simple sitting. It's looking at a picture of almost all of the minor prophets easily could be wrapped up into uh, there's a problem. We've sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. His people have, have not pursued him as he has pursued us. Uh, and we, are, we have a problem that there is now a relational dynamic of brokenness between God and his people, and he is calling us back to himself through repentance, not by works, uh, to come back to him, or else there will be uh, ultimate judgment. There is judgment progressively uh, in uh, discipline in the life of those whom the Lord loves, but he does that in order to draw us back to himself. And so we repent, come back, and are restored. That's basically the outline of all 12 uh, of the minor prophets. But we're going to unpack them each week, trying to, to pull little dynamics, maybe to uh, refract that light uh, a little bit, to consider it in each case. Uh, Joel, we don't know exactly when Joel was uh, written. Joel is uh, just another way of saying the Lord is God. 
Jehovah Elohim, uh, brought together in that name Joel. And we know that he was a follower of Christ. Most likely he was preaching and teaching in the southern kingdom. Uh, we don't know if it was early or latter, but most scholars believe that it was around the time uh, that the um, Judah, the southern kingdom, had come back from their captivity in Babylon around 586, and they still hadn't gotten it. They'd been sent away in judgment, and now they'd come back, and they still weren't pursuing and following the Lord like he had decided and determined that they should. Uh, they were, they were thick-headed. Remind us a lot of ourselves that we just don't seem to get it. Parents, we'd love to discipline our children once, wouldn't we? And then it'd be done. That doesn't seem to be the case because children are a small microcosm of ourselves that we don't get it either. And the Lord, as a loving parent, continues to come back. So this morning, I want you to think for a moment. If a cure for cancer was found, I mean a cure for every possible kind and mutation of cancer was found. And the scientists who determined and found it, it was a, it was a given fact that it was going to cure every single kind of cancer. And by the way, you could take it and it would prevent any kind of cancer from ever coming into your body. It would be loving for the scientists to come and to say, take this medicine. It would be loving and caring for them to say, listen, if you don't take this, then ultimately the cancer will progress throughout your body and it will kill you. The ultimate outcome of cancer is dying. And they would come and they would give this wonderful picture of blessing that if you take it, uh, you're going to live. If you take it, your body is going to be healed. If you take it, there will be refreshment and flourishing and life will be given to you. But if you refuse to take it, uh, there's going to be ultimately judgment on your body. Your body will decline. Your body will be destroyed. You would look at that and you would go, that's a great thing. That's a loving thing. For those scientists to do that, to give both the promise of blessing and the warning of judgment. Well, it's the exact same way within Scripture. God is saying to us, listen, there's a cancer within every single human being. We're born with it. It's called sin. And sin, by its very nature, is destructive. And it is progressive. And it will ultimately act out by its nature, which is to kill and to destroy. But God comes as not the ultimate scientist, but as the perfect creator, uh, the loving father, uh, the one who comes and he says, but there is a remedy to that. There is a remedy to that. And the remedy to that is Christ. That if you come to Christ, you will come and find life. He will heal your soul. And ultimately, all things, you included in it, will be made new. But if you don't, there's going to be destruction and death. There's going to be judgment. Because at the heart of all sin is a rejection of who God is. We think that sin is a breaking of rules. And even in our families, we've, we've adopted a broken practice uh, of disciplining because of the breaking of rules when what we're disciplining isn't just the breaking of rules. It's, it's a condition of the heart which says, I want to rule myself. Mom and Dad, thank you for all the blessings of a home. Thank you for all the blessings of food. Thank you for all the blessings that, that you're giving me. But I like autonomy, even in my youngest years. And, and so when I break the rules, it's really me saying, I don't want what you have to offer 
I don't want your name. I don't want your blessing. I don't want all of that. Jonathan Edwards, the wonderful scholar and theologian, maybe the greatest that America, uh, the Lord has ever produced within America, in his treatment, uh, a treatise called The End for Which God Created the World, he wrote this, The Creator is infinite. This means he has all possible existence, perfection, and excellence. This means he must also have all possible honor and respect. In every way, God is first and supreme. His excellent qualities are the supreme beauty and glory, the original good, and the fountain of all good. This, of course, means that we must, in every way, have the highest regard and honor. God's purpose for my life was that I have a passion for God's glory and that I have a passion for my joy in that glory and that these two are one passion. What God is saying is your desire for me is your greatest good because it is the greatest good in all of the universe. And when we go and run after other things and give glory to other things, it is to our detriment but it is an offense to who God is. God's passion for his own glory and his desire to have his creation find in him alone, its glory is not hatred, but it's infinite love. Like the scientist with the cure for cancer, God is holding out an invitation to come to him and to find true life. All of the minor prophets stand together. We learn from each of them. And in Malachi chapter 1, verse 14, it says, God says, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And if you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I'll send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessing. Joel is a picture of God's desire for us to have him as our ultimate glory, our ultimate desire. And when we don't, it is his very kind intervention by punishing our disobedience. And you may go, I don't understand how all that works, but we'll unpack it a little bit together uh, this morning. The first thing that we're going to see today, it's a simple outline, is that there is a problem, that there is a problem. The second thing we'll look at is how do we respond to this problem, and then what's our hope at the end of the day? So there is a problem. Uh, We have wandered away. We've left the Lord. That's what chapter 2, verse 12 that you heard read uh, says. Uh, it, It speaks there, and he says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Why in the world would God say return to me with all your heart? Because we've left him. And when we usually return, we don't return with our own a whole heart if we return at all. And so the problem is that we've wandered away. The problem isn't God leaving us. The problem is always, my friends, us leaving and pulling away from God. If you're sensing the absence of God, it is not because he has moved away from you, but that we have moved away from him. It is our wandering. It is our movement away. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. That we are invited, no, we are implored to return because we've wandered away from God. You see, the very essence of what the Bible calls sin is summarized in the first commandment. And the first commandment simply says this, you shall have no other gods before me. You'll have no other gods before me. 
Every other sin is derivative from that sin. At the heart of sin is rebellion. At the heart of sin is turning. At the heart of sin is our insatiable desire for self-rule. The book of Judges is the picture of that. And there was no God in Israel, and the people did what was right in their own eyes. When we reject the king, we go, well, I'll fill the void. I'll fill uh, the vacuum within that. I I will rule myself. You see, this is a self-inflicted problem. If you're new to the church, if you're stepping back into the church, I I want you to hear this. This isn't going to be a sermon of doom and gloom. This is a sermon of absolute hope. It's a sermon uh, that should move our affections towards God. It's a sermon that brings us uh, to this table because it's a text uh, that does the very thing, that it's not God who has inflicted the problem upon us. It is a self-inflicted problem. A friend of mine used to tell me as I was learning how to lead within a church and how to do different things, he said, Bill, he was in business and very successful. He said, Bill, I just want you to know that I've never fired anybody in all of my years in business. I was like, that's amazing. How did you do that? He says, they've always fired themselves. He said, it's always self-inflicted. And it's the same way within the economy of God that the problem of sin is always self-afflicted. We choose sin willfully instead of choosing God willingly. And by the way, God cannot and God will not allow sin to reign in this world and in the lives of his people. Therefore, he must judge it. By its very nature, he can't allow it to be there. His judgment of sin actually is an extension of his mercy in our lives. When you begin to experience a judgment of sin, when you begin to experience the discipline of God, it it is an extension of his mercy within our lives. That's why, parents, it is so important for us to raise our children in the love and admonition of the Lord, to discipline them. We live within a society, and it it breaks my heart whenever I hear, and this isn't about you if you've said it to me in particular, but when I hear parents say that my child is my best friend, and your children were never designed to be your best friends, because it is hard to discipline best friends. But if we see and we move away from the enabling side of parenting and we go, no, we have to teach this to them because we want them to learn ultimately uh, to come to God in this same way. The book of Joel, like all of Scripture, is God's gracious allowance towards us that we can see sin uh, in us taking where it's taking us and that he would judge it. And this one is, if you've read uh, Joel this week, let me ask you a question. This isn't to make you feel great about yourself. I'm just interested. How many of you uh, took the challenge of reading Joel uh, this week? (laughs) The rest of you, welcome to the book of Joel. Um, Let me tell you all about chapter one. Now, here's a little invite. Every single week, now, you can't say, I don't know what's coming next. Guess what's coming next? The book just to the right. It's a guy named Amos. So I'd love for you to read Amos. And every single week in the e-news, if you get that, we're giving you resources that you can read Amos. And there's actually this thing called the Bible Project, which puts together a wonderful uh, description of every single one of these books uh, in picture form. Uh, And so if you have a hard time reading, just watch it, uh, and you can get that. And so if you've read uh, Joel, for the three of you who read Joel this week, uh, you came and realized that chapters 1 and 2 were confusing because they're talking about locusts. You're going, what in the world does my life have to do with locusts? 
And you're thinking maybe you watched the latest of the Jurassic Park. I was going to show the little opening clip of Jurassic Park. And I thought, I don't do video clips well. It's not who I am. Uh, But it was a locust swarm going out. And that's what God is describing uh, in chapters 1 and 2. That chapter 1 is this picture of locusts that are coming in. Uh, And it says, the word of the Lord came to Joel. And he says, what uh, he says, now tell your sons about it. Tell your sons, tell their sons to the next generation. He said, this is going to be such a cataclysmic event. This is going to be something so profound that you're going to tell generations about. It. And what he said is it's going to be a locust swarm. And it begins and it destroys uh, everything. In chapter 2, I believe, scholars disagree a little bit on it, but I believe it's just another uh, illustration of what the locusts looked like and were like. We have recorded history in 1915 in the very same region uh, of locusts that were coming out and they flew down out of the northeast so thick that they obscured the very sun itself. They dug holes about four inches deep, and they deposited 100 eggs in each hole. And so there were 70,000 eggs uh, within a square yard of soil. And those square yards accumulated for miles and miles of square miles. And then ultimately, they, in a few weeks, these young locusts hatched, and they began to crawl along, and then they formed wings, and they began to jump along, and then they were able to fly, and they flew along. And they destroyed absolutely everything in their path. When they took everything off of the tree, they decided to take the bark off of the tree. And then they decided that there must be something inside of homes. And they entered inside the homes and they ate everything inside of the homes. This is the picture of what was happening to Judah in those days. And it said that they leave nothing behind. And you go, locusts. What in the world do locusts have to do with my spiritual life? Here's what it is. They're a picture of God's both progressive and God's active, his passive and his active judgment of our sin. You see, sin has within it a progressive nature. Sin, it moves and it enters into the world and it began in the process of disintegration. Just as the locusts began to move and they grew and their destruction became worse and worse over time, so it is with sin. When sin entered the world, it disintegrated. It tore apart the perfect integration of God's creation. And so sin is that way within our lives. Sin always acts according to its nature. It always acts according to its nature. Consider a boa constrictor, if you would, uh, if you've gone to uh, a circus and you may have watched and there's a circus one particular time where the man standing in the middle of the ring had the huge boa constrictor and he would wrap it around himself and he would, everyone would wow and then he would take it off and put it on the floor and he would walk away except for one particular time when the boa constrictor wrapped around him and he was there and the audience started to see him struggle and then they started to hear the bones crack and they started to see his body absolutely destroyed. Because why? Because the boa constrictor eventually acted by its nature, which is to destroy its victim. You can play with sin for a while in your life. You can rub it and cuddle it. You can keep it in a bottle and you can keep it around. But ultimately, sin will have its day. Its movement is always progressive within the life of the believer. And so it is that that is a part of God's judgment in our life. 
He allows sin to bear out in our lives so that we can see its destructive nature. If you go over to Haggai uh, and you read in Haggai, it says, you drink to get drunk, but yet you can't get drunk. You go and you earn money and you put your money in bags that have holes in it. You go and buy all of this grain and your storehouses are consumed. It never ultimately satisfies. Again, friends, here's what you should be praying for one another. Pray that sin would lose its taste in the lives and the taste of others who are with you. They would lose its tasting, that it would be exposed within that. So there is that passive dimension that it just grows and progresses, but there is also an active dimension. It is God sending his judgment uh, upon his people. You see, he, and we're going to look at it in chapter 3 very briefly, that God sends his, his judgment against us because he wants to get our attention. Remember this about sin. Remember this about our problem. At the heart of the problem isn't just that we have sin in our lives. Here's the heart of the problem. We sinned against God. We've sinned against God. That's what we need to be saved from. We can no longer be fundamentally concerned about what has happened to us. We must be fundamentally concerned about what we have done to God. He is the offended party And if you're having a difficult time uh, reconciling uh, how God, a loving God, would send locusts to a people and destroy them, and it was years of destruction, how a loving God can do this, please hear this. Any experience in your life of the painful consequences of sin before it is too late is God who is rich in mercy. Let me say that again. Any experience of the consequence of sin in your life before it is too late is an experience of the rich mercy of God who is giving us opportunity to turn away from it. That's actually incredibly loving. It is his love trying to turn us back to himself. That's the problem. So what's our response should be? Well, God's not loving, and I don't like my life right now, and that's not fair to me. No, God's saying, here's your response, return. Our response should be to return to him. Look at Joel 2, uh, 12 and 13. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me. With all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. The natural tendency of the human heart when we feel the discipline of God is actually to move away from God. When the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of the scriptures is saying when we feel that, we should be drawn back to the loving nature of who God is and saying, thank you for bringing these things to my attention. Thank you for reminding me that I'm acting out of accord with how my design and who I'm called to be. Thank you for that. God desires us to come back with the wholeness of uh, our hearts. And in order to bring us to our senses, God has to bring us to the end of ourselves. Friends, know that. In order to bring us to our senses, sometimes God has to bring us to the end of ourselves. And for many, many of us, what we're looking to do is come up with better solutions to the problem. We're looking for better solutions to the problems. When we begin to feel the consequences of sin, normally we double down on effort. What Joel says here is rend your hearts, not your garments. Over in Micah chapter 6, Uh, It's a progression of saying, well, what shall I give to the Lord? Bow myself before the high, or shall I come with burnt offerings and calves of a year old, pleased with a 1,000 rams, maybe 10,000 rivers of oil? Should I give my firstborn? Uh, We basically say, what else do you need? Some of you are here this morning as you're offering to God saying, I really messed up last night. 
And God, if you get me out of the mess of last night, if you get me out of the mess of last week, I promise I'll come to church. God's glad that you're at church, but what God wants is the wholeness of your heart, not the actions on the outside only. You see, we look for solutions to fix the problem. We run to them over and over and over again. And what God wants is for us to come to him. Some of you need to hear this. I heard a preacher say, and I thought it was so good, God always has more locusts than you do solutions. God always has more locusts than you do solutions. And whatever solution that you're trying to use to fix your life outside of Christ himself, God will send locusts. And that is a gracious sending. So God desires repentance and rest. He desires us turning to him. And so what's our hope in the midst of this? Here's our hope. Return to the Lord, for he's gracious, chapter 2, that he is compassionate. He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. And it shall come to pass that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors, catch this, shall be those whom the Lord calls. You want to know what your hope is? Your hope is that you're sitting here today and you are hearing the call of God upon your life. Friends, that is a hope. That is a hope. There are millions within our country. There are thousands within our community who have not heard this call yet. And it is a great hope and a comfort for you that you're hearing it this morning. And it is a great hope and a great comfort that it's God who initiates the call. Isn't that good news? Because how many of you would want to come to a God like this God? None of us. The passage of Scripture that Josh read in Ephesians 2 said, you're dead in your sins and trespasses. Dead people do not have the ability to initiate anything. We're not just sort of dead. It's not Princess Bride, where there's just a little bit. They're not mostly dead. We are dead dead and lost, and praise God that he calls, and in his calling, he gives us a new heart, and he regenerates that heart, and in that new heart, that new heart then calls out to God. R.C. Sproul, the wonderful pastor and theologian, says, yes, friends, we always choose God, but God first has to change the chooser so that he will. God initiates the work, and in that then we return to him, and we find blessings, a God who turns and relents. As we turn and relent, God turns and relents, and it says in verse 14 of chapter 2, he leaves blessing along the way. He leaves blessing. God restores. I hope you highlight, and if you've got your Bibles with me, highlight chapter 2, verse 25, and God will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has torn away. Some of you know that verse so well. And you've seen it in your own life. And I pray that you would see the restoration of God. I was watching, I'm a college football fan, and uh, David Pollock uh, was an All-American defensive lineman for Georgia. And he was a first-round draft pick and promises of millions of dollars and fame. And in the first game, I believe, of his professional career, he snapped his neck. He wasn't paralyzed, praise God, but he snapped his neck and his career was over. And I watched a video this morning of David Pollack standing and talking and saying it was the greatest thing that ever happened to him because God took away something that was going to lead him away from himself. And God has restored tenfold to him, not just fame and not just money, but what he restored to him was life that he had lost. Friends, some of you understand and know that. 
and God satisfies us. And then in chapter 2, verse 28, it says that God pours out his spirit upon us. That was given to us in Acts chapter 2, that we see the spirit of God being poured out on us. And so, friends, there's this all of this in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of locusts and returning to the Lord. And then if you read chapter 3, it's this very interesting and hard thing about a valley called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, called the Valley of Judgment. It's called the Valley of Decision, and revivalist pastors have mispreached this chapter all the time where they go, hey, come to the Valley of Decision and decide for Jesus. Friends, stepping into the Valley of Decision means the decision has already been made. The Valley of Decision is where God is going to sow his ultimate decision to destroy all of those who've stood against him. He says, take your plowshares and and turn them into swords and come and stand against me. For everybody who on that day, the day of the Lord, stands, will fall unless we stand in Christ. Friends, you see, this table that we're coming to, this table that Christ, on the night in which he betrayed, when Christ took bread and he said, this is my body, what he was saying was this, friends, I lived the perfect life. I honored and glorified my Father perfectly, and none of you were able to do that. I entered into chapter 3 of Joel. I went into the valley of Jehoshaphat. I went into the valley of decision, and I stood against my Father's white-hot, unmitigated wrath in my life, and my body was consumed by locusts. My life was destroyed by him so that yours never would Friends, you should never hope that you will find yourself in the valley of Jehoshaphat. And when one day we do, we need to point to Christ and say, I stand with him. And Christ said, and then my my blood was, was poured out so that you could be forgiven, so that my father could relent and return to you. I had to be destroyed. Friends, that's what this table is all about. It's about God relenting, not because he can wink at sin, not because he can say, oh, it's no big deal, but because he said, I made it a big deal in my son's life, and I crushed him for you so that you could come and be restored in that. So, friends, this is the invitation of Christ. It's to come to his table. I'm a J.R.R. Tolkien fan and the Lord of the Rings, some of you have read. And in The Return of the King, there's the powerful scene that at the city Gondor, the last good city, that it's all the forces of evil are round about and that the evil dark Lord is standing and he's crying out and he grimly claims the city for himself. And Pippin, one of the little hobbits, comes and all hope seems to be lost. But in that moment of bleak despair, the riders of Rohan, they come charging, and their horns are blowing. And Pippin rose to his feet, and he stood listening to the horns, and it seemed to him that they would break his heart with joy. And never in after years could he hear a horn blown in the distance without tears starting in his eyes. Friends, this table is the picture of Christ standing in the midst of a culture, an evil culture, which says, we won. 
And we celebrate this every single week. And I've already heard from people, why are we doing it every single week? Because if we do it every single week, it'll get rote. If we do it every single week, uh, then we'll, we'll forget uh, about its meaning. No, friends, this is the horn blowing. Every single week, and my prayer is that your heart would break with joy and that tears would come into your eyes. And that today, in midst of Joel, you would see this picture, that it's Christ who stood in that valley for you. 